Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. Marcy Dermansky is an acclaimed author of three novels. She also edits books. Are you working on a novel, a collection of short stories? possibly a memoir? Do you need some help with your manuscript? Do you want to get it rounded into better shape? Go to marcydermansky.com and find out more about Marcy's editorial services. marcydermansky.com. Marcy Dermansky, she's an editor. She will edit your book. She'll help you make your book better. Go and talk to her. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It's incredible, you know? It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. Erica Carter is my guest today. She is a debut novelist. Her book is called Lucky You. It's available now from Counterpoint. I had a great time talking with Erica. She was here in Los Angeles. She came over. We sat down. We had a conversation. I'm going to share that with you momentarily. Uh, it, it was a big week, you know, this past week or last week, whatever it was, with the uh, GOP healthcare vote in the House. I know this is a literary show, but this was kind of front and center for me. I can't get it off of my mind. It feels like something I want to talk about. It bothered me in a way that few things have bothered me as an American person in my lifetime. And it uh, made me really angry. For those of you who've listened to this show for a long time, you know that my son, uh, River, was born with some health issues. He's going to be two in July, and he has some uh, neuromuscular issues. He has some physical delays that we're working on. And so I think I might be more invested in the outcome of this vote than most people, though it affects us all. I think a lot of people are invested, frankly. But the way that this was done, no CBO score, no open debate. You got to remember too, and then this is what, this is another thing that'll bother me is that you will hear Republicans try to equate what they did with what the Democrats did when they passed Obamacare. It's bullshit. 
the Democrats had a, a, a process that lasted more than a year. We got a CBO score. We knew what was in it. And frankly, it expanded care. It was paid for. It would bend the cost curve down. We knew all this stuff. Was it perfect? No. Does it need to be fixed? Yes. But what the Republicans did last week was they rammed a piece of legislation through the House of Representatives, the People's House, that will uh, remove more than 20 million people from the health care rolls, strip them of coverage. And what it basically amounts to, and this is the real takeaway, what it basically amounts to when you boil it all down is a massive transfer of wealth, almost a trillion dollars, from the most vulnerable among us to the most fortunate among us. Almost a trillion dollars from the poor to the top 2%. That's what it is. And included in the bill is a guarantee that kids with disabilities will have less access to care. That women who have suffered, you know, it's, it basically makes health care for all of us demonstrably worse in every measurable respect. The American Medical Association, the AARP, how many different organizations came out and said, hey, this is a disaster. Don't do this. Approval for the bill was like, what, 17%? Well, it was, it was very low. They passed it anyway. They don't give a shit. It was a kind of a breathtaking display of contempt for the people they supposedly represent. Donald Trump on the campaign trail. I'm going to give you universal coverage. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be better. It's going to be no problem. Bullshit. He just sold you out in the most grotesque way, and then threw a party in the Rose Garden. Bunch of white dudes, almost all, I mean, basically all white dudes, celebrating, drinking Budweiser, having a Rose Garden party because they just stripped 24 million people of health care, took away, you know, they're taking away health care from kids with disabilities, women who have suffered sexual assault, defunding Planned Parenthood, the working poor, the elderly, they can charge the elderly five times as much under this uh, new GOP bill. Makes me very angry. So I reacted online with unusual emotion on my Twitter feed or whatever. Uh, I think a lot of our political activism these days is centered on social media. I don't know how effective it is, but it just feels like, well, what, where else are you going to speak out? That's your little microphone. It's not nothing, but I usually, you know, I try to maintain a certain level of decorum or like uh, emotional distance to keep my sanity. But this week I was, I think I was unusually emotional. And when I was reflecting on it over the past few days, like, why did I lose my shit like that? I think what it comes down to is this, is that I'm offended in a very deep way by open celebrations of cruelty. And that's what this bill was to me. It just seems cruel to me. Like people are going to die as a result of this legislation. That's not hyperbole. People are going to die because of this legislation. They won't have access to care. They won't get preventative care. Kids with disabilities are not going to recover 
or be able to have uh, as, as high a quality of life because they're not going to have access to the, the therapies that they need. What the fuck are you having a Budweiser for? That, that offends me. It should offend us all. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but I have to say that. We can't forget it, and we should do everything possible to remove the people who voted for this thing from office. This is their legacy. By the way, if you're listening, <laughs> if you're a House GOP member or anybody who worked in the machinery to get this thing passed, this is your legacy. This is your karma. And you're going to have to deal with it. And I don't envy you that. That's not a threat either. It's just a promise. It's the way the universe works from my perspective. It's the way it seems to work. You won't be able to escape this. This is a permanent stain on your record. And uh, it's, it's a defining moment in your time on this planet as a human being. This is what you stood up and said was okay. This is what you said you were for. And I, it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a tragic error in judgment. My perspective, my opinion. All white men in the Rose Garden. Did you notice that? Was there a woman there? Was there a person of color there? It's hard to say. I mean, just it's always just this sea of white bros. Privileged white bros. Got like their fraternity letters tattooed on their body somewhere. Sausagey fingers clapping. I have contempt for these people. Or at least for this behavior. You know, this vote. To make everybody sicker. To make our society less compassionate and caring. You know, like, uh, there's a quote that I go back to in my head, and this is something that I came across online on Twitter. And it's a, it's a quote from a sermon given on Christmas day, 2006 by the archbishop of Canterbury a guy named Dr. Rowan Williams. And, you know, I'm not even a churchgoer, kind of a lapsed Catholic. I'm not the kind of person who goes around the internet looking for quotes by the archbishop of Canterbury, but I stumbled into this and I've never forgotten it. And he said, the poorest deserve the best. When you hear that, I wonder if you can take in just how revolutionary it is. They do not deserve what's left over when the more prosperous have had their fill or what can be patched together on a minimal budget as some sort of damage limitation. And they don't, quote, deserve the best because they've worked for it and everyone agrees that they've earned it. They deserve it simply because their need is what it is and because where human dignity is least obvious, it is most important to make a fuss about it. So that's something that's always stayed with me. And I think it serves as a kind of guiding principle to me, uh, politically and otherwise. Because it is very confusing, isn't it? How do we make sense of ourselves as a group, as a society, as a country? How do we take care of one another? How do we organize ourselves politically? How do we, how do we create a functioning government that is humane and sane, or at least reasonably so? And so it's like, okay... That's a good idea. 
The poorest deserve the best. Let's start with the, the most vulnerable among us. Let's start with the poorest. Where is the crisis most intense? Where is the need the greatest? Start there. Work your way up from there. And what seems obvious to me is that we currently have a system where we start at the top and we work down. We, uh, what do we, trickle down? Is that the term? It's backwards. It's upside down. The poorest deserve the best. Why? Because their need is what it is. That makes sense to me. Let's try that. We've never tried that. Let's try that. See how things go. See how we feel. See how people feel about us. Like we seem as a country to have lost our way. You know, we need our North star. We need some sort of guiding principle. We need to get, uh, our act together. And I feel like, you know, this sort of idea is manifested perhaps most explicitly in the realm of healthcare, right? We talk about crises among people, well, a healthcare issue, being really sick and not being able to afford medicine, being really sick and not being able to go see a doctor, having a child with special needs and not being able to get that child care because it will bankrupt you. And you know what? I'm lucky. Like I should say this, like we, you know, my family, we have some resources, but I still feel it. And I especially feel it on behalf of people in a similar situation who do not have resources. And you know what? I feel it for anybody. This is what I don't get. Like Paul Ryan, if he were to have a terrible accident and be maimed uh, or if he were to fall gravely ill, I would want him to be able to go to a doctor. Like, what is so complicated about this? That's what, it's just... Anyway. We need to vote the people who voted for this horrible bill out of office. They should not represent us. And we need to realize that every developed nation, every Western democracy on this planet offers universal coverage to its people as a guarantee. We are the richest country in the world and we don't. And it is a, a moral disgrace and we need to wise up, you know, I think people on the right view health insurance as a product and you either elect to buy that product or not. And people on the left are, you know what, there are a lot of people on the right who, who view it as a right. They view access to health coverage as a right. We should all, as a matter of human dignity, be able to go see a doctor and get medicine when we're sick. It's not some capitalist exercise where you either have the money or you don't. We can't have a country like that. Think about what that leads to. Think about what kind of community you're going to live in, even if you are rich, even if you do have a Cadillac plan. You're going to be surrounded by human suffering and to think that you can insulate yourself from that human suffering by living in a gated community or having a private jet or whatever the fuck you're misguided. It'll affect you too. So 
That's my spiel. That's how I felt this past week. It's been bothering me, obviously. And uh, I've had enough. I'm going to donate every free dime I have to the, you know, to the uh, political opponents of these jokers who voted for this thing. Get them out of office. And I'm going to speak out over and over again for universal coverage and health care as a right. Just as a matter of human dignity. We've tried it the other way for a long time here in America, and it's not working out. Let's try it the way the rest of the developed world does it. They seem to be having an okay time of it. Is it perfect? No. Are there lines? Sometimes. And you know what? I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and I was trying to play devil's advocate with us because we were both in agreement. We both want to have universal coverage and single-payer coverage or single-payer health care in this country. And I said, yeah, but what about the lines? And she said, you know what? If you have to wait in line a little bit so that poor people can have access to a doctor too, then wait in a fucking line. That sort of makes sense to me. I'm not expecting perfection. That's not what political solutions ever are. But we can do better than this. We can do better than having a Bud Light party in the Rose Garden by taking health insurance away from 24 million people, most of whom are poor. All right. So let's get back to the show. Uh, And thank you for hearing me out. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I guess this week is Erica Carter. Her debut novel is called Lucky You. It's available now from Counterpoint. She was here in town in Los Angeles and uh, just a delightful person. I had a great time hanging out with her, and I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Erica Carter, and her novel, One More Time, is called Lucky You. Everyone told me it's not a walking city, and yet I like had it in my mind that I was going to walk to various places. Um, then I eventually got two Ubers. You got two so, Ubers. Yeah. But you flew in this morning. Yes. What have you done yes. so far? Well, I got in like really early at 10 a.m. And I, um, just uh, nothing important. Just I, I, fucking around. Honestly, I did nothing interesting. I walked around with my suitcase like <laughs> in the heat for like an hour, <laughs> like on roads that like aren't walkable. And then I went to... I ate a burger and then I came here. Wow. <laughs> Electrifying. <laughs> it's LA. It's yeah. the Los Angeles experience. Did you go to In-N-Out Burger? 
Uh, no, but you're the second person who's asked me that. Well, I mean, that just seems like some sort of ritual that people go through when they come here. No, no. I went to a place called um, the Burgeria. No. It sounds like the Burgeria. No, no, no. The Bulgarian. The Bulgarian. Yes. Oh, that's and right around was, the corner. Yeah, and I was the only one there. And it was a good burger. Okay. You were the only person there. Yeah. Oh, God. You should have called me. I could have directed you to a more crowded restaurant. It's sort of sad when you're the only person in the restaurant, right? Yeah. It's a weird situation. And I had an orange Fanta. Oh, you did? And it came in a giant, giant (laughs) cup. Is an orange Fanta, is that something that you regularly order as a beverage No, it was just a treat for me. I I was going (laughs) to say. Because I'm in LA. (laughs) It seems like the kind of thing that one would order in Los Angeles as a sort of... uh, It's like I always sort of am jealous when I see it in in other places. And then I saw it on the menu and I was like, I'm in LA. I'm going to get a Fanta. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't remember the last time I had a Fanta. It's like, what what was I saying the other day? That it was the first... Oh, I, I had a mimosa on Easter... And as I was having the mimosa, it occurred to me that it was the first mimosa I've ever had in my life. Are you serious? 41 years old. That's, what do you do in the morning? <laughs> Are you just more of a Bloody Mary person? I don't, I don't like to day drink. Oh God. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know if we can be friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that I like to, um, have cocktails like once the sun is setting. Like that's my thing. Like, but during the day, the Good problem is, well, I mean, you know, the problem is, is that I get, uh, I like having a drink, but then I get tired. I don't know. I get sluggish. No. I, need, I need to stay sharp, Erica. Um. I have a, I am a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where are you from? You, you, I know you come from the East coast. You came here from Charlotte. You live in Richmond officially, but like where, where were you raised? Yes. I was born and raised, um, outside of Richmond, Virginia in a suburb called Midlothian, um, Midlothian? Yeah. What, isn't that in Game of Thrones or something? I don't watch Game of Thrones because oh, okay. I don't watch magic. Oh, you don't? <laughs> you don't watch magic? What no. does that mean? I don't... I've had several friends tell me I should watch Game of Thrones and I just can't get over the fact that there's like, peop, you know, like dragons or whatever. You don't like that shit? It. I can't. I just can't do it. I Why? Can't. Um, you don't like fantasy stuff? No, not, not at all. I, I cannot go there. Um, mostly because I think it's, I'm just too annoyed because I think it's a lack of imagination. Whereas a lot of people think that fantasy, they go to fantasy because, well, everything's been done, whatever. But if you have to go to fantasy, that means you have a lack of imagination. There's so much here to discover if you just go deeper and deeper and deeper. What about realism? But what about people who, for whom reality is pure hell and fantasy is their only escape well that's no that's fine this is just my personal oh okay. my personal taste gotcha um i don't i i think that fantasy yeah it's great for not saying not le, like delegitimizing it as a genre it's just not what i ever want to go to right and you can't even consume it like you can't even enjoy it as a, as no, a passive because i'm like it's a monster. How can I take this seriously? <laughs> <laughs> I sort of get that. But yet I, I swear to you, like Game of Thrones is an extremely confusing show. I have watched every episode of it. I don't normally gravitate toward that stuff. I'm sort of of the same persuasion. Like I, the, the fantasy, I would never read the Game of Thrones books, but you get sucked into this thing and it's the weirdest phenomenon because I've, you know, what is it? Five seasons in, six seasons in. No idea what's going on. Couldn't tell you what anybody's named. Can't wait for the next episode. 
Mm, yeah. Would you watch it again, though? Probably. Well, no, I don't usually do repeat viewings. But I, like, if I was stuck on a plane or like five or six or seven or eight or ten years from now, because it's so confusing, it might be interesting to revisit the series. Like, it truly would bear a repeat viewing because of the intricacy of the plot. Like, it's very tangled. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of friends that say, you know, that I'm wrong and I should watch it. Um, but I like shows that, um, for example, Breaking Bad. Like, I love that show, but I wouldn't rewatch it because... I haven't seen that one yet. I've seen some oh. of it, but it's I've seen, like, the first three episodes and I loved yeah. it. Yeah, I just haven't had the time to, like, commit. Well, but what you're doing each episode is... Um, you're watching for plot. You're watching for the next episode to see what happens. And so once you know what happens, um, it's meaningless. Like the see you would never revisit it. Whereas Mad Men, which is my favorite show. I've watched probably. the first four seasons of that, but then I like flagged and yeah. like, I, I lost the thread, but it's, I loved it. I love Mad Men because there actually, there isn't much of a thread. Like you can watch any episode or you can watch it from beginning to end. And it's still like, you know, you, pick up on new things I feel or like, I do. I feel like Peggy from Mad Men is one of my favorite. She's one of the most like heroic, uh, lovable characters in recent television memory. Like I really like attached to her. Yes. I love Peggy. Yeah. Everyone yes. loves Peggy. Yeah. You're getting a little um, emotional talking about Peggy. <laughs> <laughs> I also really love the show, the Nick. Oh, the Steven Soderbergh. Yes. With Clive Owen. Yes. I have it's, not seen. It's 1901. And I love the tagline for the show. It's modern medicine had to start somewhere. Oh, it did. Some of the shit they used to do with like leeches. And... I mean, they did. They had to start somewhere. They weren't even wearing gloves. They're just like digging into like the body <laughs> with their hands. It's This is the thing that's so disconcerting, especially if you ever face health issues or someone you love faces health issues. Doctors don't know everything. No. They don't know everything. I think we have this sort of casual assumption that like somebody knows how to fix everything and that they have the answers for everything. The truth is that there are many, many, many medical mysteries and doctors are just grasping. And once you get into a yeah. situation like that yeah. and you see them grasping in front of you, yeah. it's destabilizing. I, it, yeah, I, I have not had the, um, my husband and I have like shady health insurance, so we don't see the doctor. <laughs> we don't have to go through that. Ameri America. But, <laughs> but, um, thank God for that shady health insurance. But I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't, I, I think that too. And my, I have a, I'm sort of like in a family of nurses. I have two aunts who are nurses and my dad was a nurse. He just recently retired, but they're all like, yeah, doctors don't know. It's crazy how much stress people put into doctors. They and, don't know anything. And they also, and like, dentists yeah. who just want your money. Well, and it's like the other thing too, is like doctors are just like any profession. Some of them are really good at their jobs. Right. Some of them are not. Exactly. So they're just human beings. They're and, just people. Yeah. And they can be tired. So. They can make mistakes. You know, it's all that stuff that you got to consider. Uh, it's no fun. And they need like a, I don't know if Angie's list, did they do medical stuff on Angie's list? I don't know. I've never they been need on Angie's one. list. I need like a five star rating. So I know which doctors <laughs> to go to. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So suburban Richmond. Yeah. Midlothian is actually the town I was raised in. Sounds bucolic and sort of folksy America, <laughs> like Americana. It's, um, uh, just like standard Virginia suburb middle-class life. Like, 
I grew up in just a great family. I have two older sisters. My parents have been together for 41 years now or something. Um, I just, I had a just very, very regular, sheltered, suburban. Happy childhood. That's not, I wasn't happy. Why? Because um, I was, I just knew that there was more and I wasn't allowed to do it. My parents are pretty strict. Um, They're religious? Not religious. No, just like they needed to know like where I was at all times and like those kind of parents, you know, like, and I loved them so much too (laughs) that. So I didn't want to disappoint them. So I ended up just like, you know, staying in my room, like all through high school, <laughs> like not, didn't really have friends, didn't go out. Cause I was like, well, if I go out to a party and people are drinking or something, then mom and dad would be disappointed. And then where, where are blah, you blah, in the blah. pegging order? Yeah. You have two. I'm older. the youngest, but the youngest is supposed to be the one that the parents I know. Well, I made up for it when I went to college. <laughs> okay. Then you freaked out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was so sheltered that like when I got to college, like I never had eggs before, for example, Why? like if, if it wasn't it, like if I didn't experience it in my house, then I just, didn't experience it. So like, we just didn't have eggs for breakfast. So when I got to college and like went to the buffet line, it was like eggs. I honestly like didn't know what it was. What what did you eat for breakfast as a child? Just, you know, like waffles from the freezer and cereal. (laughs) Yeah. Eggo. Eggo waffles. Eggos. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Like fish sticks. (laughs) (laughs) For breakfast? Yeah. Good God. I know. It's well, I guess uh, you got to get your protein, right? The suburbs. That's what oh, um, yeah. So, so but, but that's like an unusual, that's an unusually sheltered high school existence. It is, but you can't complain about it because I was, you know, so loved. And I think it, it was sort of like actually a fucked up childhood, but it's not the kind of fucked up childhood you can like complain about. Were you over loved, over sheltered? Uh, oh yeah. 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 And, and was it punitive? Yeah. Was it punitive? Like were you, were you feeling like under threat? Like if I go to this party and I drink and I come home, my parents find out like they're going to fucking ground me for a year. Was it that kind of thing? Um, yeah, a- but I wasn't worried that they would ground me for a year. I was just worried about, you know, how well they would ground me for a year but mostly i was like they're gonna hate me they you know they think so much of me and i'm gonna disappoint them and the whole disappointing thing it's like you're a good kid what you're a good you were a good kid oh well right um yeah well and yes i did because i didn't even want to you know yeah even though i was dying inside i was so unhappy because um just wasn't able to i wasn't growing at all but in a way that might have been good for my writing career because I stayed in my room and like wrote like horrible poetry in a spiral notebook. I was does. also really into sports, which is weird. But like, I as was. a fan? No, no, I played a lot of sports. So which that was sort of my like um act like friendships and activities. That's wh- where I what sports? Um, in high school, I played basketball and field hockey and softball okay. and track. Wow. And then when I went to college, I played basketball and tennis in college. Okay. And so, so, but let's stay in high school for just a minute. Did you go to your prom? I went my junior year. 
Okay. It Sen- was senior, senior year, you were just like, oh, no. I was like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? This is bullshit. How do they sell me on God, this? No. Yeah. It was, it was nightmarish. It was, I got it was s- awful. I got so stupidly drunk at my senior prom. If I think about really? it too much, yes. So embarrassing. Like embarrassingly badly high school drunk. Like just. Were you worried about your parents? No. I was, this is the thing. Like I love my, I have a, I had a very similar childhood in a lot of ways, but maybe wasn't as concerned about my parents hating me or something, uh, or disappointing them. I, I was really good until about, I think halfway through my sophomore year. And then I I was never a terrible kid, but, um, I got into some trouble and your parents were religious, right? Catholic, Catholic, but you know, fairly moderate, increasingly moderate Catholic throughout my lifetime, you know, but they're from, they're from the South yeah, and like, you know, South Louisiana Catholic people. And, uh, but you know, I was raised in the Midwest and, uh, I don't know. It wasn't, they, they were never like, it wasn't like a punitive situation. They wanted me to be a good kid. But the thing too, is that uh, coming from the South, it's a very, uh, booze is in Louisiana, especially is part of the culture. Like they were s- somewhat comfortable with it, with the idea of high school kids boozing. I think they sort of expected it from me. <laughs> That's nice. <Yeah>. <laughs> sure. <laughs> wish my parents would have expected yeah. that from me. I'm from like, you know, the piano lessons and horseback riding lessons. Damn. And, okay. So let's, let me, let me try to get a clearer picture of this because this is not tethered living in suburban Richmond, Virginia, to any kind of religious context, which seems odd to me because that would be the normal assumption. So your parents, um, just had high expectations for you. Were they worried? Like, were they overly Um, worried? That that seems like, well, my mom is a, is a force and my mom grew up in poverty in Southwest Virginia. And, uh, she is really smart. She was like salutatorian of her high school and then went on to, she went to college and met my dad and and she just had this like vision of what her life was going to be. And part of that, I think entailed just like raising, you know, she wasn't going to, she was going to raise like daughters that were everything that she did not have or didn't want. And and she's just a really, really, really strong person who I admire a lot for those reasons. And I self-made my second book is like dedicated to my mom tentatively. Okay. We'll see how she does. <laughs> Better behave yourself, mom. <laughs> Hope she's listening. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, her vision was just so strong. It's like, you know, I think like if I were to have kids, which I'm not, my husband and I like decided we're not having kids, but if I did, I would raise them in a way that they could just grow up and be whoever they wanted to be. You know, they could just be kids. They could be, I would like try to be as hands off as possible and make them feel like as autonomous as possible. I think I would have like, that's what I was missing or whatever. And every, you know, you correct what your parents didn't do, whatever. Right. Um, and, uh, but my mom was correcting, you know, the poverty and, you know, what she went through. And so in her mind, it was just all about protecting me and us 
and getting into college and just doing the suburban thing because that's what was in style in 19 whatever it was so in style i was born in 1986 yeah and then they moved to yeah it was like they were doing like the 90s thing you know and um yeah it's really complicated because i love them so much and i I, but i do you know i I wasn't a happy you were you were bearing the weight of their dreams yeah and they sort those dreams sort of in a way superseded yours at least in during that part of your life yeah yeah and didn't help that you know every now and then my mom would say something like well, you know, if it wasn't for y'all, your dad and I would have divorced a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so high school, you yeah. go, you go to, uh, you go all the way through your senior year and did it feel like when it ended, like I'm getting, I'm getting out of here. Like I, was it kind of like you needed to escape or was it? Not really, because I, I don't, well, I was really excited to be getting out, but then, like, the whole, so my parents wanted me to go to this, like, specific school, Lynchburg College, which was two hours away. Okay. It's a very small, private, liberal school. Um, The worst possible school that I could have gone to, like, for me as a person. It's, it's a very conservative, like, sort of private, like, everyone there, like was from you know like private schools in new hampshire and vermont and whatever (laughs) like playing lacrosse and Uh like nobody it was not challenging at all and also this was like you know jerry falwell was like running that town when i went there oh god yeah i mean it was insane there's just no it's just chain restaurants churches jerry falwell and like you ever seen private school cross players no no you never did well not that i'm aware of no he was watching you're like I mean, he, he actually yeah. was, he was watching he, probably, me. he was lurking I behind felt a tree that, i felt that he was watching me the whole time but... <laughs> right. oh my god yeah um, it's interesting you know yeah. they're, they're part of the country yeah. and that element but the, it sounds like the college culture was kind of diametrically opposite to the Jerry Falwell thing. Like it wasn't, or was it a conservative school? It was very conservative. Oh, so I just did not fit in at all. So naturally I started dating my tennis coach. Uh-huh. As <laughs> I one mean, does. what else can you do at a place like this? <laughs> right. Like had to do something. Uh, and so we actually, you know, I ended up, I met him when I was 18 and he was 29 and went through the, first season and then the second season rolled around went through that went on like a cruise like a tennis cruise that like the college paid for and everything <laughs> and um Wait, what is it eventually cruise? he what was is a tennis like cruise? banned from campus uh like i don't know he he he, he just got the funding so we could go on this like one of those cheap like carnival cruises <laughs> that, had te- that had tennis courts on it no there was no tennis courts oh I was like, are you playing tennis on a boat? This sounds like hell. No, no. Okay. Just, you, just, you just went on a cruise. Yeah, we just went on a cruise. <laughs> where did you Where'd you go? Where did the cruise go? To the Bahamas. Okay. It's like the cheapest cruise you can ever find. Like a four-day carnival cruise to the Bahamas. Yeah. We could have, my, it costs like $400. <laughs> my family did My family did a, uh, a cruise. I don't know if it was carnival, but we did a, Baham- a Bahamian cruise when I was in high school. And the weather was terrible. 
and the and the ship was like you know rocking like everyone in my family like I think my dad puked at dinner on the first night. Like it was a, it was a, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. And like my mom and I like trying to like make the best of it, went, <laughs> went to see the band play, you know, cause they have like entertainment. Yes. We're like, let's go, let's go watch the band. And like the boat was, was rocking so badly in the weather that the drum kit slid off the stage like the drummer <laughs> like the drummer just slid, you know what i'm saying it was like <laughs> yeah. yeah that's my memory of my bohemian cruise so you do this cruise and then you come back and then eventually this guy gets kicked off of campus yeah there's a scandal uh yeah huge scandal i continued dating him for two more years though i just quit the tennis team quit sports okay which actually was a relief because i didn't ever even like sports in the first place i just happened to be athletically gifted <laughs> you're a good athlete and yeah yeah and it was you know and my dad cultivated that from my from when the time I was three years old. So like, even if you're not that talented, if someone's been coaching you for the, your whole life, your like, dad was like your you coach. Can, yeah, pretty. Yeah, I mean, he was just his whole life was like my sporting events. Uh-huh. Um. So, uh, you know, it was like the only thing that we ever bonded on was sports. Right. So. Once I started dating my tennis coach and was totally out of sports, it was like, uh, you did your know, parents know you were dating a, your tennis coach? Yeah. What? Yeah. I was very honest about it with them. Like I remember coming home from the cruise <laughs> and like, um, just telling them that I was just really, really in love with this person. And, um, you know, just was really honest. They weren't pleased. They weren't pleased. No. But what can you do? You put your daughters out in college. <laughs> but my dad like continued going to the matches and like bringing me Gatorade. Really? Things. Yeah. Oh anyway, thank God. Finally, the sports came to an end. But wait, you're, um, so you're good at sports, but you hate it. What did you not yeah, like about yeah. sports? Because it's a ball and it doesn't matter. And it's a ball. It's like Game of Thrones. It's a yes. It's like, essentially like what a is the dragon without wings. Yes, and okay. I remember feeling this way even like in I was like it was like tenth grade or something, and we had to do this drill in basketball where like the coach threw the ball down the court and you had to like dive after it, and I just remember thinking like. I don't want to do this. I don't see the point. I don't care. It's a ball. I don't care if it goes out of bounds. I just don't care. Right. <laughs> Should have been a, that was the time to quit. Right. You know? That was the sign. But in a way it's like sports had sort of like, that was my identity for so long, you know? And as a, you know, like a woman, like girl, um, you can only be good at like one thing. So like, if you're like a jock, you can't also be smart. Like you can't be, you know, score the game winning goal in overtime state championship field hockey game. Did you do that? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, and like write poetry. Like <laughs> you just can't do that. Like, you know, um, so it really like messed with my mind a lot because that was never who I wanted to be. Like I never wanted to be an athlete. I always wanted to write <laughs> okay that that is what you cared about yeah always. that was your thing did you growing up you did sports did you take piano lessons piano lessons can you yeah. play no okay <laughs> you did horseback riding yeah could you jump onto a horse in no, a full gallop no okay 
Did you go to Cotillion? Yes. You did. Okay, Cotillion. Yes. Yes. So your parents are raising a yes. proper, proper. Yeah, lady. that was my mom's vision. You know, she got out of poverty, and she's like, just so smart and so good at her job, and so like. What does she do? Real. Um, she's the development uh, director of development at the Virginia Historical Society, which is a museum, gotcha. and she worked her way up from nothing. Um, you know, she's like because back in those days if you're a woman you're like applying for the job they're like great you just go into the typing pool or whatever yeah, like yeah. she started out as a secretary and now is like the most powerful person there and she's just like a really powerful presence like anywhere she goes if she walked into this room right now she would own the room oh yeah yeah she would i would be like shrinking <laughs> <laughs> just give her the microphone what uh? Yeah. What part? What and you said she's from Southwest Virginia. What town? May I, may I ask? Um, it's Bassett, Virginia. Okay, and that's, right. that's Patrick County. All right. Um, just God, just you don't want to go there. Oh, you just, don't? No, God, no. Okay. Well, no, I mean, I, it's I was a telling you, I, I hiked through Virginia, so I, I went through a lot like, of small towns. Mm, yeah. Not this one. No. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just one of those that would be like on a documentary, like. About like what? The, like murder. A, 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 <laughs> murder. Like meth and opioids yeah, in Appalachia. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so you yeah. date your tennis coach. Jerry Falwell is watching you. Yes. You quit sports. <laughs> and did you have a, a moment in college where you started to uh, sh- have a shift in your identity towards the yeah, writer, so writerly side of you? Yeah, so once I quit sports and I that's about the time like in in a liberal arts college where you can start taking classes that you want to take. Right. And so that so happened that that coincided with like, I took my first creative writing course and I had now all this free time. Cause I'm not like lifting fucking weights. <laughs> like, <Doing squats>. um, <laughs> like, so I can actually just do what I've always been doing, but I can do it like in public now or something, not even in public, just in a university where you're actually supposed to do that anyway. Take it seriously. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I had this great creative writing teacher and Let's, her name is Laura Morello Okay. and she's still at Lynchburg college. She's wonderful. Um, and I just, like, I think I just, something clicked and I was like, this is the only thing I want to do. And like, this is the, it just clicked, even though I, I may not have even been able to like tell myself this like coherently in my mind. But what I felt was that this is like the only way I'm going to live or this, like, this is the only thing I'm going to do. It's the only thing I want to do. This is the only thing that like feels like me. You know, I'm having a very strong recollection right now of a conversation I had with uh, Laura Vandenberg, and she had a, like a similar time in her life. If I'm recalling correctly, like I'm working from memory, but similar time in her life, similar like level of power of experience, where it was mm-hmm. like it was like so like it was like a not just a, re- a recognition of interest, but like a recognition of like I, like personal identity. It was like this is me. This is the thing that I am here for. And this is what I can do. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's so powerful, especially when you're 19 or 20. I mean, 
Um, Were you good at it from the start? Um, I was like, just, you know, when you like, like think about your first creative writing class in college or whatever. Um, I was like just a bit above average, like nothing special. Right. I mean, but you know, I would look at other people's stuff and be like, Pfft. <laughs> <laughs> people suck. Um, <laughs> Like, and I loved, re- I always loved reading, like throughout all this, like I was reading constantly ever since, you know, like I could read really. So like even going on these like basketball tournaments or whatever, I was like, you know, even if they were like bad books, like reading like V.C. Andrews under the sheets or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and that's just really important, you know, like however bad the book is, if you're, um, that engaged in writing, which is why I don't think that, uh, going back to our discussion about fantasy or whatever, just because it's not my personal taste now, if that's what someone wants to read, like go for it. Like that's more power to you. Anything that can consumes you, um, like in the written word, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Um, and so you said, you said VC Andrews, but like, were there other authors that like really turned the light on for you when you were young? Um, well, I read the bell jar uh-huh. and then Katrin the rat. I read all like the, you know, it's like, I also read a lot of like, I read like Hillary Clinton's books when she was deeply unpopular. <laughs> this isn't like, what, like it takes a village? It was like 2002 or 2003. <laughs> I was like singing her praises. Nobody. Yeah. I remember I wrote like my senior paper in high school on Hillary Clinton and my teacher just, you know, so you're pro Hillary. You um, like her. Yes, I do. I do. Okay. I do like, like I'm her. curious to talk yes. to you about this. Like, cause you read like her, yes. like what bio- yes. autobiographical. Yeah. I forget what they were called. Yeah. Takes a village. And the, the, the one after that, um, did you read her secretary of state book? Like, what was it called? Tough no. decisions or no, okay. no, I, I, you know, she's not a great writer, so you don't get that much from the books. I mean, she's just not a great writer. But she's also a politician. They have to scrub these things. Well, but, you know, you can read Barack Obama's books, and he's clearly, he's just a better writer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, Even I mean, Bill Clinton. I mean, the, my life is a mess, but... Did you, you read know, it? No. Oh. Who could read it? It's too big. It's Who? Too... Who could read it? Like, yeah. uh, but I've looked at it. I've scanned it. I'm I've just had... like, I get a feel for like his style of writing. And I'm just like, oh, that's, this, that's Bill. I yeah. read a, I read a biography of the Clintons in 2000. It was, it was really of Bill, but it included Hillary, of course. And it was about, it was called first in his class by David Marinus, who's a Washington post writer. And I just remember being like, ew. And I'm, and I I agree. And like, I I voted for Hillary. I mean, you know, like, but the Clintons, like, I don't know if it's possible to be in politics on the main stage for that long and not, you know, have every bit of dirty laundry aired, but it's just like, it was exhausting as though, especially Bill, like it just exhausting to read about his life in a bad, in a bad way, you know, like, yeah. Um, but yet people are so complicated and of, he's a, so complicated and he's so like, he can speak about complicated things. And so they just become more complicated and well, but he's also, you get lost in the billness of 
what he's, he's saying. I was in uh, I was in the Pepsi Center for. I almost just sounded like Bill Clinton right there, and I'm doing the hand. Thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for those of you watching, I just lifted my fist and I'm doing like the Bill Clinton thumb thing, like where he kind of points his thumb at you while he's talking to you. Um, but I was in the Pepsi Center in Denver in 2008 covering the Democratic National Convention. So I got to go like for all, what was it? The first two or three nights were in the Pepsi Center, which is the basketball arena. And then Obama gave his speech at Mile House Stadium, which is the football stadium. And I was in the Pepsi Center when uh, Ted Kennedy gave his last public speech. And then Bill Clinton gave a great speech. Um, oh, interestingly, I'm now remembering all this stuff. I was in the basement of the Pepsi Center trying to get onto the floor with my press pass. And Hillary had just walked out onto the floor to, um, what is it, concede? Or like, you know how like they're, by acclamation they're going to nominate Barack Obama. Like she had gone to the New York delegation to say like, it's over. And I remember she, I want to say she was wearing like a orange pantsuit. Maybe, maybe orange isn't the right color. It's a softer, what's a pastel orange? Like, I don't know. You know, she's what worn all the colors of pantsuits. Yeah. Or maybe, really or maybe matter. it was blue, but anyway, I remember walking in the bowels of the stadium and all of a sudden these doors swing shut in my face and these secret service guys are like, stop. And Hillary had gotten stuck in an elevator and they were just bringing her out. And like, there was like a, a narrow rectangular window in the door and I was standing right at it. And as I was like, as she came off the elevator, she walked like right in front of me. I was very close, but like separated by a door. Cool. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's a riveting story. I saw Hillary Clinton through a plastic window. Um, she may have been wearing an orange or a blue pantsuit. <laughs> and Jerry Falwell was watching her. Always. He's always, always watching. He's, yeah, he's here now. And now his son is watching. Yes. Um, along with Franklin Graham. But uh, anyway, the point that I wanted to make is that Bill Clinton spoke that night and he blew me away. Like the room, like you're, you're in a stadium and you try, I truly felt like I was yeah. in a room with him and we, yes. I was in a basketball stadium, you know? And so he that, can do that. Yeah. It's like people are complicated. Yes. Uh, do you watch the Adam Curtis documentaries? Uh, <laughs> maybe I Hy- watch like hyper normalization or no. Oh, should I? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I should. Yeah. All right. What are they about? I won't so? say anything more. <laughs> just watch them. <laughs> And then you'll see how they relate. (laughs) But I mean, like, just for the benefit of the audience, brief thumbnail. Oh, this is being recorded? Yes, it is. I'm wearing a wire. Um, Adam Curtis is this brilliant British documentarian who, he is, like, unafraid of tackling, like, any subject. And one of them, for example, um, hypernormalization, which is the most recent, is he just examines politics like american and british politics from such an unusual view and there's a lot about bill clinton reagan margaret thatcher uh and just it's it's incredible like you should just watch it okay. I, I can't is it on netflix it by even talking no no that's the thing that's it's really weird how it hasn't like come to america yet or whatever like it's not you have to just go to the bbc and track it down i I actually i have all of the um every documentary he's ever made on my computer i can send it to you adam curtis yeah okay yeah i'm a huge documentary fan so i'm surprised i haven't heard of him i can't i'm 
God, you're going to flip out. <laughs> Can't even believe this. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. she has just changed my life. <laughs> um, all right. So yeah. you, you date your tennis coach. You break up with your tennis coach after an ill-fated cruise. <laughs> you quit sports. No, like two years after the ill-fated uh, it cruise. It takes time to yeah, process. It takes, it. Time. it takes a long time to process a, a terrible time. cruise. Yeah. Um, then yeah. you, uh, and then you finally start taking creative writing classes and now you're sitting here. Um, you're publishing a novel. Lucky you. Can you talk about the, the road that you traveled to get to that point? Yeah. Well, I'll start with breaking up with my tennis coach. <laughs> and then I moved to Arkansas when I was 22 to do the MFA program there. At the University of? Yeah. In Bill Clinton's hometown, right? Or little, mm, well, he's from he, Hope. He, he's from Hope, but yeah. his he and Hillary's house was actually like in walking distance from my house. They lived on California Street. Uh-huh. And that's actually the house where they got married is uh-huh. in Fayetteville. And her wedding dress is in the window of the house. It's like this tiny museum that has like no money, but like, you know, it's such a gem to the town. Sure. Um, Point of pride. Yeah. Even though nobody likes the Clintons outside of Fayetteville and Little Rock. <laughs> I mean, you know. Um, so I, why Arkansas? Why did I go there? Yeah. Well, I applied just randomly again, still super sheltered, <laughs> like no idea about the world. I just like applied to eight programs and I got into like half of them and I was like, well, um, this one sounds like good, I guess. <laughs> And <laughs> I mean, it was really such a whim. Like I didn't know. I mean, it's amazing the things you do when you're young because you're just so ignorant. Like That's, yeah. I thought of nothing. But like, there are people who, who aren't like, I, I sometimes think back, like there are people who knew what the fuck they were doing. Like they were strategic about I definitely it. Definitely was not. Yeah. Well, I, I was just such an idiot. Um, and I moved there and I thought it was like such a great city. I was like, man, I'm in the big city here in Fayetteville, <laughs> Arkansas, compared to Lynchburg. Right. Like <laughs> Jerry Falwell and my parents, you know, just down the road. I'm like, I felt so free. Okay. And so did you go, I mean, you talked about you dated your tennis coach, which is a little bit subversive or whatever, but did you go crazy and like start boozing and doing drugs and like freak out and become a hippie or anything? I mean, not really. I mean, no, but okay. I did like, I think I just acted like a normal person in their early twenties, but like what to me was a big town was actually a small town. And so like, <laughs> like I was just all about dating people and exploring like as if it was LA, <laughs> right. Right. but in fact it was Fayetteville, Arkansas. <laughs> well, so everything's relative, right? <laughs> yeah. To from- me, it was like the big, I was just like so excited by everything and so much energy. And I was like, never imagine settling down or even dating anyone. I didn't date anyone like until I was like 27 years old <laughs> and I moved back to Richmond actually. Okay. So my whole time in Fayetteville, was just like writing and learning and sleeping with people and like having experiences. And it was like, it was 
Def- it was like the best time of my life, definitely. You had a good, you had a good time. <laughs> yeah. You love Fayetteville. Yeah, I mean, I paid some prices for it. You know, some people didn't like that, especially in the program. And it's a very like, um, it was a very like competitive MFA program. There were like prizes at the end, and so. Did you win any? Yes, I did. So that was a problem. Right. <laughs> Um, but people also were like, what, you were having too much fun or like they didn't like the way you're behaving? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm not serious or like, oh, I must have like fucked everyone on the <laughs> panel judging or whatever. Like, right. even though they were anonymous, just, uh, you know, all that stuff. Just people like, accused you of that. Um, I mean, yes, they did. There was actually a petition. <laughs> Whoa. Yes, I know. Yes. It was crazy. Like um, other students were saying that she's gaming the, the prizes? Yeah. God, that's competitive. Yeah, it's a really competitive program. What was the outcome? It may have changed now. So they, they submit this petition, and then what? They, do they investigate you? Oh, no, no, no. Because the petition was just made by students, and they're oh, like, whatever. Jesus. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you know, like I'm always... Anyway, I'm, I, I but didn't, I still, I, didn't go... I mean, I get hate mail now. I get all kinds of... Um, I've... Yeah, like, I get, you wouldn't believe, like, I get really, really, like, nasty emails, and... Still? Oh, yeah, not not from that. Oh. No, no, just, like, it's, you know, part of the, I guess, culture, if you're, I think, I, I'm probably not alone of, like, young-ish... <laughs> female writers writing, um, honestly about like sex and things and alcohols. I don't know, like just whatever. You're probably going to get some. So people like readers, readers reading your work and then writing you just shitty notes. Yeah. 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 And it's usually dudes. No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Not in my case. Like I listened to your interview with Roxane Gay, for example, and my people are a totally different brand than her. You have different, different, different haters, different, different, <laughs> hate, different brand of haters. Now. Yeah. yeah. Mine are definitely women. What are they? What do they, yeah. what do they come at you for? Oh, just like, you know, like it's so hilarious that you think you're a writer. <laughs> like, you know, like, um, uh, you know, such a slut like <laughs> you know it's just it's very shaming. like shaming yes, you. yes yes yeah um yeah so it's it was actually it was really nice to listen to your interview with Roxane Gay because like it really gave me to hear her talk about it even though we're dealing with some sort of different like bullies it was like really nice to hear her like open up about it and be because you know, I guess like the tendency is to just, cause it's like embarrassing. So you just want to not talk about it or divulge that this is happening to you. How often does it happen um, to you? Well, there goes through phases. Like there'll be a period of a couple months where I'll get something like every day or whatever. Um, and then months will go by where I don't get anything at all. Is it almost mm-hmm. always negative? Oh God. Yeah. It is. I'd like never get positive mail. <laughs> Do you? I get does anyone? I, Fuck you. You know what? <laughs> I honestly don't get, I mean, this is the truth. And I, now that I say this, I'm going to jinx myself. But like, <laughs> yeah. I don't get. People are going to get mad right now. <laughs> I, know. 
I don't get much hate mail. Um, I think I do get like haters on Twitter. You know, people in the more immediate will like bitch about the show on Twitter or about me or. What do they even say? Like, how do you even bitch about the show? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I, I'm sure I annoy somebody, right? I mean, you have to, maybe if, if you listen to it enough, I think if you listen to maybe anyone enough, eventually they become annoying. But then it's like, why are you listening if you're annoyed? Just, Just like, turn it stop off. Stop listening. That's what I say. Like, don't buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, but see, maybe in the, the, there's a similarity. Um, I think books work work on people in a deep way, and they require a lot of energy and effort to consume. Podcasts less so in terms of energy and effort, but also can work on people in a deep way. It's like it's in your skull. You know what I'm saying? And it's a, um, you know. There's a bridge between consciousnesses. And I think when people read a book and go through the trouble and find something disagreeable or it, it tweaks them in some way, it's a deep kind of upset. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I, that's why I think people tend to freak out a little bit and, uh, can be nastier about books than, than they might be about say like a song or a painting, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but um, I guess people can be nasty about anything. Yeah. They have it in them. And I feel like it might go, I think that's uh, maybe a third of the people. And then some people, it just like touches a nerve or something. Right. Like you're writing about everything that has bothered them and they've been trying to suppress. And suddenly you're just like, you know, pushing it. (laughs) And, you know, it like, it touches a nerve and they actually get angry. Um, how long did it take you to write your book? Um, like three years. Did you have like, much. did you ever write a book that you tried to publish? It didn't work. Do you have, this is no, it. This no, is Maiden Voice. First, yeah. It took you three yeah. years. Was it hell or was it easy? Oh God, it was awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, like to hear that. I had published stories before, but I was no, I knew nobody. I had no, I mean, I was writing totally into the void. Like no idea, like what was going to happen. Um, I was just writing this book, like hoping, you know, I was way more idealistic back in my mid twenties. Cause I didn't know anything about the publishing industry. Right. Like, and I'm really glad I didn't because I probably, you know, I don't know. Like I just was writing and was like, yeah, so then I'll just try to get an agent. And there's something to be said for youthful enthusiasm and, (laughs) you know, yeah. Like now I wouldn't have that kind of, you know, um, yeah. So it, you know, I found an amazing agent. Actually we share an agency. That's right. I love Erin, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. She came to my reading in New York. Oh. She's, I love her so much. She yeah. has the tiniest hands. She's, I love that. <laughs> she's love delightful. her hands. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she sent me a book too in Charlotte the other day. She's like, it's called, I haven't read it yet, but it's called, um, woman number 17. Uh-huh. Eden Lepucky. Yes. Yeah. And she wrote this note that was like, I thought of you, um, with this book, uh, she writes messy female characters, the only kind worth writing about. There you go. She's a good egg. Yeah, she's great. Uh, and, and so you get yeah. this agent, you have the manuscript in pretty good form, and then it goes out. Yeah. And? Yeah, and so pretty, you know, as soon as, like, Henry 
got on board with it or read it or whatever. I did some edits with him and then it's like two months later, yeah, it was, you know, sold to Counterpoint, which like is like a dream press of mine. It was like Counterpoint and Algonquin like are like my top presses. Yeah. <laughs> and I told this to Henry, like, you know, and he was like, really? <laughs> It's like, yeah, no, I couldn't imagine anything better than that. Right. It's like you need to you need to up your game, honey. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, we're gonna start with the top. <laughs> um, and but he's been great. Like so much of it is luck, just like falling into the hands of someone that likes you your book and your writing and believes in you, you know. That's right. Um and it was sort of a weird time, uh for counterpoint and like editing wise because um they had just been bought by catapult and so rolf blythe my editor was like immediately he was not in the picture anymore like as soon as he accepted my book so like i didn't have an editor and i feel like things have to give somewhere you can't have like a great agent a great publicist which is megan fishman who's She's delightful. The absolute best yeah. person ever. Um, can't have it all. Right. <laughs> and it's not, I'm sure he would have been a great editor if he was, you know, still there. But I just, you know, that was like the one thing that was lacking. So. Yeah. Well, but I mean, you, you, you mean, it's hard, it's hard to get through even one of these hoops, finding an agent. I know it's, it's, you really have to be like, this has to be what you want to do. That's right. And what do your parents think about this? Um, well, your mother satisfied. She happy. They were, well, I think so in the Richmond times dispatch, (laughs) which they were very concerned. They were like, why isn't this in the local paper? We need some publicity. It doesn't matter if it's in, you know, wherever, like it could be in the New York times. It wouldn't matter. But if it's not in the Richmond times (laughs) dispatch, that's right. So finally it was, but it was like, like in a you know a corner and it was only like they need two to do sentences. A, they need to fe- you should do a feature story on exactly. you. Exactly. My mom was like, I don't know why they didn't have your picture in there. It's <laughs> a bunch of horseshit. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think they're. I think they're. I don't proud and mystified, maybe. And um, is there any literary bent in either of them? My mom is so smart. She was an English major. She reads a lot. She's like, her mind is um, just incredible. I'm terrified of your mom, by the way. I know. You should be. <laughs> so am I. I want to have her on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder right now. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds awesome, though. She's had a big um, influence. Yeah, yeah. She sounds like the kind of person, like, uh, what's the word, you know, um, imposes herself on... And that's not the right word. It's uh, just a big influence. Yes. Big presence. Yeah. And I'm sure they're very proud. I think, you know, as proud, like, yeah, when you don't, obviously you're more proud when you fully understand like the whatever, what it took. It's like me being proud of my dad as a nurse who is a nurse on the psych floor for 30 years, which is really, really difficult work. Yeah. And he was usually the only male 
on the floor. So we did like all the heavy lifting and he would have like scratch and he had to, he was dealing with all these mental problems all of his life. And he was so stoic about it. And I can be so proud of him for that and still not know like exactly what it took, you know, it's you as a writer makes a lot of sense. I'm starting to see like how those two people, like your parents formed a writer. Oh, really? Yeah. Cause I think like dealing, like being on a psych, being in a psych ward yeah. for 30 years and then being like an English major, <laughs> I mean, it's basically being a writer. You just see what I'm saying? Like dealing with people, like, like psychiatric, like, uh, people's minds, um, the struggles that people go through, uh, emotionally and psychologically. That's not mental. That's a lot of the stuff of writing. Yeah. And then to repress it. Um, to, you know, cause you have to legally, you can't talk about it. So well, just to come home to your suburban house after this, like someone's just tried to commit suicide by putting their head in the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. And here your daughters are like coming home from basketball practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, hospitals are amazing. In, hospitals are intense. Yeah. And, uh, the people who work there, especially the nurses in a way, cause they do a lot of the nitty gritty. Exactly. They but do all the hard stuff. That's right. And they're doing a lot of the patient interaction. Doctors come in kind of quickly or a lot of the time. And like even, um, a lot of RNs, like people on my dad's floor would quit after five years, which is understandable because it's really difficult work. But my dad did that day in and day out for 30 years. What, why do you think he was able to last? Is he just made of tough stuff? Does he have some sort of like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Was he, is he a very calm man? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not easily mm-hmm. rattled. No. And he doesn't like to read or watch anything that's going to like mess with his mind. So he's very like, you know, he doesn't want to read books like mine or, you know, like, um, I was actually even what is worried. He, what does he for, read? What does he watch? Um, just, his, his favorite movie is Pollyanna. <laughs> what is that? I don't, I don't even know. know what that is. It's it, just, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> but, uh, he also, um, he's, I think he's just very protective of his like mental space. Um, and he would never read a book like I wrote and I was actually really worried about him reading it, you know? Um, See what his reaction would be. Yeah. And so I told my mom, I was like, mom, I'm just like, is dad going to be like really embarrassed or weird or something if he reads this? And she just goes, well, should have thought of that before you wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) I like your mom. I'm liking your mom, you know, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you this too about your dad. Um, all my life, especially in my younger years, I could watch, read, listen to anything. Could be like a documentary, a documentary about the Manson family, like right before bed, you know, like no problem. But I've been reading over the years, like there's there's an art there's a case to be made that everything we ingest affects us. Makes perfect sense to me. And it's everything from like, you know, if you drink too much alcohol, you're gonna get drunk and sick. If you do too much crack cocaine, it's going to, you know what I'm saying? Like you're taking it in 
and that is included in that is media. These things have an effect on us. They have an effect on our emotional makeup and well-being. Um, if we're watching violent movies or reading super violent or disturbing uh, books, or like true crime, everything, you know what I'm saying? Like, not that they're bad, just that, you, you know, it's worth remembering. Like, this stuff does have an effect on you. Like, if you're reading, like, you know, Us Weekly constantly, it's going to affect your sense of body image. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it just, for some reason, in yeah. my younger years, I never thought of media in the same context as, say, food and drink or toxins of that nature. Do you see what I'm saying? In terms of how they affect my health. I'm like, it sounds like your dad, especially because of the intensity of his day-to-day -day work life, learned that, like, listen, I'm taking so much in nine to five. Yeah. If I come home and have to like watch a documentary about the Manson family, I'm going to flip the fuck. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, yeah, you gotta, yeah. you gotta guard your, you gotta guard your mental space. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm just the opposite. Like I need all of that stuff to like feel like a human being, you know, I want all of that stuff. Cause I'm interested in like getting to the truth of like human nature or whatever. And my dad just wants to zone it out after you get off work, which is totally understandable. Yeah. But I think that, so sports is what connected us for a long time. And then when sports wasn't there, it was like, now it's just, you know, like we, we can't have a conversation because he doesn't want to talk about anything that matters, not even politics, not anything. Um, cause he's still, you know, protecting his mind space. Wow. Um, but yeah, you got to start so watching Pollyanna or whatever. Maybe that could Pollyanna. be the bridge. I don't know if I can watch it again. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. You know, I guess I, I got yeah. more, I got, I got to be softer about all that stuff when I had kids. Um, like I found myself more sensitive to like violent imagery and like disturbing stuff. I don't know, or maybe I I'm think just... maybe that's why I don't want to have kids. Yeah, right. You're just like I want to keep watching violent shit. <laughs> I just shit. want to get darker and darker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still do. I still do. It's not like I, I, you know, it's not like I only watch like National Geographic documentaries or something. Which, by the way, when animals attack, like when a crocodile attacks like a wildebeest or whatever, that that bugs the shit out of me. I can't deal with it. Um. Yeah, that honestly is one reason I don't want to have kids is because it would have to totally change my entire world, like everything I think in like, like I would have to change, you know, my entire vision of life, which is just that life is comic and not tragic and that like nothing matters and whatever. I'd be fine if I died right now. And just, is that what you think? Yeah. <laughs> right. So you have no fear of death. Um, no, I, I am afraid of it. Yeah. Um, but I just think that life is like mostly just a funny little joke <laughs> experience. I mean, right. And you can't think that if you have kids, like if you have kids, you have to like woman up and like, I don't know except that life is more than that. And I don't want to because it raises the stakes. To yeah. Have kids. And I don't it gets more I, intense. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but I don't know. It's it's complicated. And, um, I think, I think I still, I still, I can still see life as a, as a comedy, 
but it's a tragedy and a comedy and sometimes at the exact same time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's tragicomic, maybe more than just well, purely comic. I think, I think it is comic. It only feels tragic when it's about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or those fucking wildebeests on those <laughs> National Geographic documentaries getting eaten by a crocodile. Yeah. I don't know why you watch that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're yeah. just going to keep writing books. Yeah. I'm working on my second novel. How far along um, are you? In like, well, I'm pretty slow and probably like at least like a year away or something from showing it to anyone. Yeah. Um, but it's a mother daughter story. <laughs> I can't, I cannot wait. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, I think I, you know, I like it so much better than my then look at you i'm already because you feel like I you're getting better yeah like i'm you know like you've probably maybe experienced this when you know with your first book like reading it over and over again and then you're like you get tired of it and you feel like a musician that just has to keep playing like the same song over and over again right. you're like you're like this isn't even that good you, right. know? you, can, you can start to see all the like all the blemishes. yeah all the flaws like yeah. become not that they weren't obvious in the first place, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, I think it's a healthy sign to be like, not too proud of what you've done. Well, yeah. And you just got to keep moving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just try to keep getting better. So what about, uh, where are you spiritually? You weren't raised religious. No. You think life is a comedy. Yes. You're sort of afraid of death. Um, I'm only afraid of like the pain of, of dying. dying, but being dead, no problem. No, no, yeah. no. Cause I think it's just, you know, lights you're, out. You're dead. Yeah. You're gone. That's you're, it. So you're no, nothing. No God, no afterlife. No. Atheist lights out. Yeah. Done. Yeah. And you're cool with that. Yeah. I mean, like I remember when Chris, Christopher Hitchens was dying and everyone, like, especially on the religious right, like wanted to like needle him. Like, now nah, do you believe in God? Now nah, do you believe in, you know? <laughs> And he's like, and, and like, now do you believe in an afterlife? Now do you believe in an, and he's like, no, he's like, uh, life was enough. I, I don't need, I don't expect more. Like this was enough. And I thought there was a lot of humility in that. Um, like, I don't know what happens. No one knows what happens after we die, but it is sort of like, it's a little bit, uh, considering like for all of its ills, like life really is fascinating and beautiful in a lot of respects. You can't say it's boring. No. Um, like whatever the fuck this is, is pretty amazing. Yes. Uh, and especially if you're lucky and born right. in the United States yes. in 1986, like me. And I mean, I've had a family who loves me and I like, you know, not that I haven't obviously gone through, you know, all of my personal pains or whatever, but like, yes, life is so beautiful um, but yeah, I basically think it means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Erica, I think it's a good note to close on. Just leave everybody in just in a void, <laughs> void of uncertainty. Uh, it's been great to talk to you and, yeah. uh, and to meet you here on what the first day, your, your first ever day in California. My first ever day in California. I yeah. Hope, it's uh, like, couldn't have picked, this is 
Perfect. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on your novel. Have a great time in Los Angeles. And I wish you all the best of luck on the mother-daughter book. Thank you. All right, guys, there you go. That is Erica Carter. Her novel is called Lucky You. It's available now from Counterpoint Press. You can find Erica online at ericacarter.net. She's on Facebook, I think. She's on Instagram. She just quit Twitter. Come back to Twitter, Erica. Join us. Again, the novel is called Lucky You. It's a debut. Go buy it. Support a debut novelist. Available from Counterpoint Press. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always. If uh, you want to know more about Kill Rockstars, go to killrockstars.com. Check out their music library. If you enjoy this podcast, if you are a regular listener especially, I want you to consider becoming a donor over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat every month. It makes a huge difference, especially if all of you out there do that. Just a buck or two, five, whatever you can afford. Throw, you know, throw a couple of bucks in the hat if you listen regularly, if you consume this content regularly. Enjoy it. Get something out of it. All of the episodes of this program, I should add, are now free. That change goes back a couple of months. The entire archive is available for free. There's an official app. That app is free. It's the best and most convenient way to listen. So everything's free. It's a donor-supported show. And uh, if you want to donate and support you can, uh, and support the program, you can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also support the show via PayPal. There's a link in the sidebar on the official website, the other PPL website, otherppl.com. All right. Sorry I got on my soapbox there in the front, uh, the front end of the show. Sometimes I just can't take it. Got to speak out. It's a citizen. All right. I need to go for a walk. Get some fresh air. It's raining in Los Angeles in the springtime. This is unheard of. It's like raining in May. I'll talk to you soon. Fight the power. <laughs>